Are you ready for good talk? you're ready for good talk this is friday man and there's so much to talk about peter mansbridge here in snowy stratford ontario chantelle bear is in montreal bruce anderson is in ottawa and if you were looking for a week where lots of interesting things were happening in the nation's capital this was your week what a week the protest well we're gonna de- we're gonna define what to call it here in the next few minutes whether it's a protest or an occupation or, or whatever it is you want to call it. Uh, and there was also the uh, firing of the leader of the opposition. I mean, <laughs> that's a lot of good stuff. So we'll talk about that. And let's get started right away on the, uh, on the situation on the streets of Ottawa. Because after seven or eight days now, people are asking who is actually in charge if something's going to be done about these honking trucks and the people in them whose responsibility is that is it a municipal responsibility city of ottawa ottawa police actually from what we've seen from the ottawa police they don't seem to want to do too much except wow they gave out parking tickets that'll scare them away is it the province of ontario Hey, the premier seems to be trying to distance himself as much as he can from this. Or is it the federal government? Part of this is on obviously on federal government lines. So whose actual responsibility is it? The prime minister says he's not at the point of calling in the army. A lot of people think he should be. But let's start with responsibility. And... You know, I suppose there's a degree of responsibility for each one of those levels of government. But who has the overall responsibility on this one? Chantel, why don't you start us? Well, the people who are uh, holding uh, the city of Ottawa and the federal capital hostage have the first responsibility on this. The, um, The Ottawa police forces who saw this coming... It's not as if they materialized uh, the truckers or their in- the intentions of some of them, of their leadership was unclear before they ever got to Parliament Hill, um, was very naive in its handling of people who come with big trucks. I am amazed that, um, and you, uh, Bruce, and I have driven around Parliament Hill over the years, and uh, if he or I had parked under the prime minister's office building for 10 or 15 minutes, it wouldn't have taken even that long for someone to come uh, from the RCMP or the police to tell us to move out uh, of that space. And if I had said, well, I'm just picking up my child or, you know, some some valid family related excuse, they would still have told me to move on and to it. Not, it wouldn't have been negotiable. So the notion that you allow people with big trucks, uh, sometimes full of fuel to just park uh, in, in that area is it kind of boggles the mind to, to, to imagine that that was allowed. I think the Conservative Party for uh, validating and associating itself or some of its members with with the demonstrators in the face of um, people who are bearing signs or saying things uh, that actually uh, are unacceptable in a democracy. This is a group that came to Parliament Hill telling some of its supporters that it wanted to overthrow the government. The notion that parliamentarians would deliver donuts to people who are coming to Ottawa to say, we're going to take over and we're going to get rid of the government is also mind boggling. And it's the first in in all the years that I've covered it. I think the the Trudeau government has done a very poor job of uh, explaining why there is a vaccine mandate to cross the border and of showing up at the time of crisis when the eyes of the country are uh, on Parliament Hill. Justin Trudeau is still the prime minister, and he has left that space largely vacant. To hold a news conference on childcare in Manitoba is really interesting, but it does not speak to there is someone in charge who is explaining 
what exactly is happening. Waiting for journalists to ask does not really uh, qualify as strong leadership, usually in a crisis, and it's been the case over the course of the pandemic. Um, Government leaders are front and center to show that they're aware of this. I looked at Prime Minister Trudeau's itinerary for today. He's visiting virtually, I think, a classroom. Um, I I don't think that sends the right signal to the country and to the many Canadians who are saying, well, how does this end? And is anyone preoccupied uh, within the government with this? Uh, Where does it go from here? I understand the, the response about the army. You just don't call in the army unless you have the premier of Ontario, the mayor of Ottawa, etc., saying, we need to do this. Can you please move on this? You need some kind of a political consensus, and it's happening in Ontario. And just as an aside, the absence of the premier of Ontario from the front lines over the first days of, of this event was also very um, surprising. There's a convoy making its way to Quebec City and the National Assembly. Uh, and I can safely report that uh, Premier Legault has not disappeared at his cottage to go cross-country skiing over the past three days. He's been front and center in saying we will not tolerate the, the abuse uh, and we will not allow this to become a siege. Whether he succeeds or not, uh, it is still kind of surprising. So I'm guessing that kind of goes around. Uh, the Bloc Québécois and the NDP, I found, have been uh, responsible adults in this discussion. But as François Blanchet rightly pointed out, neither of them is at the head of the federal government, Justin Trudeau is. All right, you've opened a lot of doors there. Um, let's see which one uh, Bruce tends to uh, to take. Who's well, I think the first thing, Peter, about it? the first thing, Peter, is that, you know, as I've kind of felt before, like this is the problem with asking Chantal to give the first answer to the most important question. <laughs> she has a boatload of all of the good ideas and all of the good takes, and then she just kind of puts them out there, and then the rest of us go, well, why don't we just go and have our second coffee of the day? <laughs> no, like I agree. I agree, Sorry. So, I agree with so much of what Chantal said. I think that technically, Peter, the question of policing responsibility is you know, first and foremost with the Ottawa police. And I don't think they've done to say that they've not done a good job is completely to understate the situation. And happily, at least the outgoing mayor, Jim Watson has been more and more blunt and scathing in his criticism of, of the way that things have been going in the last few days. I think once that fails, then it's up to the province. And then if that fails, it's up to the federal government. And we've had cascading levels of uh, hesitation to step in. Now I understand the reason for the hesitation, which is, and everybody can get it, which is that you don't want to precipitate the violence that some people attending this protest uh, probably do want. They want conflict. They don't really care about the vaccine mandates. They don't care about, um, you know, the whole pandemic basket of issues. They want conflict because they're here because they hate Trudeau and they want the government to be changed and they've been disappointed with the outcome of elections and they're and they're venting their frustration and it's February and it's Canada and it's cold and and so there's a lot of that um but you know I think the absence of Premier Ford is also uh really really compelling um I don't know what he's going to do in Toronto this weekend if there's a protest, but I rather suspect that he can't afford to be as hands off as he has been with respect to Ottawa, where he doesn't look at his political math and think that there's very much at stake for him. I think the um, the shocking but not that shocking display of uh, the conservative, some of the conservative members of parliament, including now the interim leader of the conservative party, who let's be clear, wore a MAGA hat. And a lot of Canadians may think that Donald Trump is a good human being, but a a great number more don't. And so now we have a conservative leader interim for sure in parliament who was cheerfully sporting a MAGA hat. And I should say two years ago, maybe just almost to the day, was pretty clear in calling for an end to blockades uh, in another situation where a different type of Canadian were involved. And in this particular instance, uh, you know, we saw this leaked email today 
where she had advocated that the conservatives not encourage the protesters to go home because it was better to make it Justin Trudeau's problem. Well, this is a level of cynicism uh, that people are entitled to wish for better uh, from their politicians. And I'm not going to dump very much on the conservative party today. It's had a bad week, but I, and I really hope that it heals itself and improves itself. But this, uh, the track record of uh, Pierre Polyev and Candace Bergen and Andrew Scheer and, you know, for sure, Aaron O'Toole as well on this protest has been miserable. It's been a miserable display of character and leadership. And, oh, okay. and we should all, including the conservatives, take note of it and say, we've got to do better than this. All right. Uh, you know, it's it, it still and I think you've all basically saying the same thing. It does come down to being Justin Trudeau's problem. If the other levels of government aren't going to do anything, eventually it hits the the federal wire, which it seems to have done now. Um, Part of dealing with this is trying to determine what, what in fact, are we dealing with? I mean, Bruce, you called it a protest. It's been called an occupation. It's been called any number of things. And I certainly get it in the mail. I've never had more mail um, uh, to the bridge than than I've had in this week, and it's... uh, 90% 90% of it has been about um, what's been going on in Ottawa. I just want to read you a short excerpt from one letter that I got from a fellow named Derek Andrews who's in, in uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick. And uh, this may sound like a bit much uh, in terms of what's, re- what's going on here, but listen to what he says. Listen to this argument. I believe the different levels of policing know this is an ugly, ugly fight. I hope I'm wrong. I'm hoping there will be a pivot this weekend, and there's indeed a plan to remove these people, but quite honestly, I'm not sure you can do it without an ugly, ugly fight. Um, I'll be watching with close attention what happens in Quebec, what's happening in Coutts, Alberta, which is completely in everyone's blind spot, and of course, what the next steps are in Ottawa. If Ottawa fills up with happy protesters again, that'll be a great sign to get this back on track. If not, these trucks may have basically trogan horsed themselves into our capital under the cover of protest. And he goes on. If you think this protest was a tactical move, it might have... um, It might help to adjust the perspective. Remember, they're about to do the same thing to Quebec City that they've done to Ottawa, possibly also Toronto. So within a week, they'll have our prime minister secured outside of Ottawa, played a part in getting the PC leader removed, and have both the English capital of the country and the French capital occupied and locked. These truckers have been empowered to believe they are freedom fighters. And I'm not sure how the government or the military are going to play this out. I can tell you for certain it's not going to be a bunch of parking tickets that people are suggesting. Okay. So that's quite a picture he paints of an occupation force that's moved in and is moving in and tactically moving in a number of areas. Not forgetting what their goal is. Stated goal, overthrow the government, make them resign, get them out have the governor general appoint a new government so what do we call this what do we call it well what this is is describing is a coup uh and uh, and it it, you you can try to uh, see this under that light but that would mean that um, you are going to overthrow Doug Ford's government, Francois Legault's government, and Justin Trudeau's government. And then who comes and leads the country? And it, it, it's, a, it's a simplistic way to, I'm not saying this won't turn ugly, but I'm saying before you, you go there, you need to um, show who it is that would run the country. Are we seriously saying here that uh, the people we've been seeing on Parliament Hill or those who are driving to Quebec City will be walking in the Parliament and the National Assembly next week and making legislation? I don't think so. I believe the critical mass, a massive critical mass of Canadians 
Quebecers, Ontarians, uh, would stand in the way of that. And I don't for a second believe for all of their flirting with that movement that people like uh, MPs like Pierre Poilier or others would actually play in that movie. That's kind of a bridge too far. So, yes, I think civil society would, would uh, react. I was interested uh, in seeing in the tide of that movement how uh, the the Quebec and Ontario convoys are, are kind of, you know, the, the, the in support of what's happening on Parliament Hill. And I was fascinated by the fact that not only is not a single member of the National Assembly going to come and grace this demonstration with his or her presence, but the fledgling Quebec Conservative Party, which has been on the rise because of its opposition to vaccine mandates and health restrictions, is also declining to associate itself in any way, shape or form with the Quebec City convoy. So where you get the political momentum to uh, stage the coup that is being described here, I don't see uh, where you get it. I don't see a, a group of parliamentarians, whether they be provincial or federal, willing to play in that movie. And I don't believe that you can stage that movie uh, unless you have some solid uh, political ally to execute it. Okay, Bruce. That's, as far as I can tell, that's not happening. Yeah, I think this is one of the more ludicrous propositions that deserve to be, you know, stomped on immediately by all of the elected officials across all of the parties, just simply to say that one thing that is not on is that we we become um, ungovernable because we decide that we need to negotiate with a group that decides that it's going to come and blockade parliament. That, that's just a completely ludicrous thing. And, and maybe in some respects, the most, you know, the second most disappointing thing to watch is how few conservatives were able to articulate that proposition in the midst of this crisis. The most disappointing thing was the realization, not for the first time that there are, angry people. There are racist people. There are people who believe in Nazism. There are people willing to put the Confederate flag on their trucks. There are people willing to buy and sell a Star of David uh, badges. And we've always known uh, that there's a part of society that has that harbors those feelings. And what's happened in this situation is that they found fellow travelers to go to Ottawa and make noise and draw attention. And it didn't mean, I'm not saying in saying that, that everybody who came to town is part of this protest or that everybody feels some alignment with the protesters, which is actually millions of Canadians who uh, feel something in common with these protesters. It doesn't mean that they all harbor or countenance or support those views, but it does mean that we've given some more oxygen and somehow conferred a little bit more le legitimacy and life on these um, the, the people who hold these dark, angry, uh, offensive, uh, prone to kind of incitement of violence uh, views. And that's a that's a worrying thing for the future of our country. And it's happening, obviously, in other countries, too. So I'm quite worried about that. And I sort of break down the what's going on this week into four issues. One is, do people have the right to protest? Sure. And we've shown that that right is upheld uh, for <laughs> with, without any question whatsoever. Second, are there people who have um, hateful views and um and is that something that we should be more careful uh, not to uh, not to ignore, not to enable, not to goad, not to uh, sanction, not to, you know, dignify? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so there was some disappointment, I think, uh, from my standpoint in watching how this played out. The third is, should we end vaccine mandates or lockdowns or mask wearing? And I think this is a more complicated issue because I do think that, well, people, some people want that end to come right away because they're so frustrated. I think other people are able to look at the data and what's happening in other parts of the world and without rancor or without being uh, completely misinformed or without being traffickers and conspiracy theories are able to say, I think the level of risk 
has come down to the point where it's acceptable to change some of these rules. And I think that's a legitimate debate. Uh, I, I frankly think that we're probably three or four weeks away from that policy step being taken. So I think that the the, the size of the protest is probably much greater than the, you know, the, the outcome really requires. But, uh, but I think it's important to recognize that that's a legitimate debate and it's not only um, up to the health professionals to decide that. There are mental health issues. There are issues of what is a, a kind of a, 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 enough of a, you know, a level of risk that's tolerable. And, and I think everybody gets to have their view on that. And I think politicians need to be cognizant of that. And the last one is the dissolving government. And I think Chantel handled that, you know, perfectly, which is that it's just ludicrous to imagine that we'd put ourselves in a situation where we'd go along with their, their idea that we dissolve government and replace it with who knows what it's, it's nuts. Well, it may be nuts, but they are saying it right. I mean, and, and, and the question was, and the letter was from this uh, fellow in Fredericton was basically looking at what they're saying and what they're doing. And you get up in the helicopter and look down at it. It is a coup that they're planning, as, as Chantel well, says. When you when you get in the, on an helicopter and look down on it, what you see are 250 people. That's right. Yeah, That's I, I, serious here. I get it. I get it. But the point is that he's making is look around at what's happening, whether it's 250 people or 250,000 people. Uh, th- these things are actually happening in our country in strategic locations. You've got the prime minister, you know, out of town. For his we protection. don't know that, by the way. Well, wherever he is, he's somewhere in a, in, a, in a spot that's secret because of for his own protection. Um, you, you've got the capital kind of locked down and and occupied by truckers. They're heading towards Quebec City. They're heading towards Toronto. They've got the problem in southern Alberta. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I don't. I, I hear what you're saying, all of you. Uh, what you're saying, also hear what our friend in in Fredericton is worried about he's he clearly states this is the extreme view as to what might be happening but it's a view Um, he should be worried that the law and order party is basically saying let's uh let this play out uh, see where it goes maybe there's some political upside for us listen we get it bruce uh, and you're you know you've made it very clear how you feel about the way the conservatives have uh, have acted this week and there's probably not a lot of disagreement on that but uh you know the bottom line is they're not in power at the moment you know others are at different levels of government and what they're doing or not doing uh is certainly of uh, interest to a lot of canadians i got to take a break here uh, this is a great discussion and we'll keep it going i i do want to you know i i watched this news conference yesterday I mean, they called it a news conference, a series of statements by some of the figures we've been kind of wondering about all week as to what are they saying about what it is they're actually doing. These are the protest leaders, supposedly. Um, I found it a bizarre news conference. I mean, there was everything but somebody with hair dye leaking down the side of their face. It was a very strange situation to watch, and it was cut short. They didn't answer really any questions. Um which is odd. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind getting your feeling and your thoughts about the leadership of this, uh, this movement that is holding, as Chantel says, is holding the city of Ottawa and to a degree the country hostage right now. Um, but first, we've got to take this break. We're back on the bridge with uh, Good Talk. Chantal Bears in Montreal. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. Uh, the topic we're still rolling on is the, uh, the convoy, the protest, the occupation. You call it what you want, uh, but it's certainly uh, a topic of hot discussion, not just on this podcast and broadcast, but also um, in uh, living rooms and kitchens uh, across the country. So uh, we'll keep talking about it here for a second. Your thoughts on the leadership of what we're at least what we've witnessed and the little we know about the leadership um the the apparent leadership of what's what's going on initially in ottawa bruce why don't you uh, start us on this part i i think that 
you know, it's hard to know what the leadership really is. I, um, I feel like it's a good idea that parliamentarians are looking into the GoFundMe $10 million that's been reportedly raised and are going to try to get to the bottom of it. I mean, yesterday we had some people who said that we are the leaders of this. And um, what was probably notable about it from my standpoint is that they they persisted in this idea that they were going to succeed in their coup. And, um, uh, you know, even before the break, we were talking about this. It, I, I don't believe that the government has uh, stopped governing. I don't believe that a coup has succeeded in any way, shape or form. And I don't think it will, but the leaders were trying yesterday to kind of soften the image of what they're doing because they felt that it had been um, characterized badly and presumably that they, they weren't kind of commanding as much public enthusiasm as they had hoped. But I don't really believe that they are capable as a, a group, the people who spoke to the cameras yesterday of uh, of controlling or limiting or shaping the behavior. It doesn't feel to me like a, uh, a kind of a movement of all like minds and, um, and similar political perspectives. I think that it's a, it's, it's pretty ragtag and I think the leadership can say what it wants, but the behavior is really the thing that needs to be addressed. And, um, and it, you know, and I, I don't know. I thought it was, it was, uh, I don't want to be too unkind about it. So I'll stop there. <laughs> um, it's certainly so unlike you to be unkind about anything on on this show. Well, you know, it's Friday. I'm trying to ease up. <laughs> okay, Chantel, your thoughts? I'm not even sure that uh, everyone who is still around Parliament Hill in this uh, operation knows who the leadership is or has a sense of how they became leaders. That's far from clear to me. And I'm not sure that those so-called leaders have a clue as to who exactly is uh, sticking around for them. But I do know that that press conference, uh, if it was meant to uh, make the families who showed up last weekend feel safe and happy to do it again, that certainly didn't work because it was chaos. And it it really looked uh, like um, a bunch of people who were not in any position to, to, to give the impression uh, that they were in charge, that they had a, a game plan beyond saying we're not going to go anywhere until God knows when. I'm guessing that the the, the security services and the police forces have a better uh, take on who is doing what, and uh, there. But I'm, I'm still curious as to why the public is getting all kinds of hints uh, about uh, foreign money, uh, weapons. But the result is zero action to tell people, as, as in my understanding is people who work in hospitals in Toronto have been told to make it look like they don't work in hospitals uh, is one of the weirdest instructions that I've ever seen. We're actually telling healthcare workers to hide the fact that they try to help people who are sick uh, from, from people who are coming to demonstrate it, it, it's, or we're telling, in the case of Ottawa, telling people, well, maybe you're better off not wearing your mask on the street. How does that work in the real world? And how does the role of the police and others become so turned around that their job is to tell you how to hide from potential unlawful abuse of your capacity to be going to work or to be walking on the street with a mask or without a mask is the larger mystery to me when this is over and it will be over at some point. I think we will need to look into the circumstances that led to this abdication of what the role of protecting the public is uh, from the standpoint of uh, police forces. I'd be, sho- I'd be shocked if um, everybody who holds a job at senior levels of certain Security forces still house those jobs once once this is all over. Um, the the healthcare workers and what they wear um, that you know, Chantel, you're quite right. That that was the instruction put out yesterday by um, uh, police uh, forces in Toronto, uh, based on what some of what had happened in Ottawa. 
I mean, some healthcare workers were, uh, if not attacked, were certainly harassed by some protesters um, for being healthcare workers. And uh, the Toronto authorities fear the same kind of thing, but that, that this would be happening and all the other things you list and nothing is being done to stop it or appears not to be done, because I agree with you, you can be sure that whether it's CSIS or the RCMP or the OPP or you know, maybe even the Ottawa police force, when they're not busy handing out tickets, parking tickets, um, there there is surveillance going on as to uh, everything, you know, like phone calls, they're triangulating all kinds of stuff to uh, to see where the money's coming from, all that kind of stuff is, is going on. Let me, you know, if, if there was a, you know, in the letters that I received this week, most of them I'll say were very supportive um are not supportive of the protesters and that had turned some had started off being supportive and then changed their minds as the week wore on as i think bruce hinted to uh, earlier that was uh, common but there was also something else common about some of these letters and it was a a, a challenging uh situation in terms of the media uh, because those who are obviously in support of the protesters feel the media has um, not done a good job on telling the story that they're not getting their issues put forward and the focus is all on, you know, the swastika on the flag, the, uh, the, the you know, the the yellow stars, the, you know, the, the uh, peeing on the National War Memorial, the stomping on the um, uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, the stuff draped around Terry Fox's statue. Uh, Warren Shockey wrote to me from, and he's from Calgary, the politicians in Ottawa aren't listening. The three major newslets, news outlets aren't listening. And I'm a bit disappointed that your podcasts are not making any attempt to listen either. I've lived and worked in both Eastern Canada sorry, and Western Canada, and I'm fully vaccinated and support the vaccination mandate. But I'd like to hear the other side of the story once in a while. That's Warren Shockey in Alberta. And, you know, that, that was more polite letter than a lot of the ones I did receive too from uh, supporters of the protesters. Has the media handled this in a responsible fashion, <laughs> keeping in mind that there are obviously different uh, different kinds of media reporting out there, uh, but in a general way, has it been handled responsibly? It is not journalism to uh, give equal weight to arguments on both sides of a story when one argument is basically faulty. Uh, and in this case, so let's go back to the original reason for all this, which is vaccine mandates for truckers who cross the border to carry stuff from the U.S. and back from the U.S. Well, lost in this, possibly if you're going to go there, is uh, maybe the media did not make it clear enough, especially in the early days, that this is a rule that applies both in the U.S. and Canada. And so that those who would say, let's get rid of the vaccine mandate for truckers are actually or have the onus to show that they have convinced the Biden administration and U.S. authorities to do the same thing, because otherwise, what exactly is the practical result of saying yes to, okay, we're not going to ask you to be vaccinated and you still won't be able to go to the U.S. and do your job. Second, if that is the main reason, then at what point uh, does the fact that 90% of those who operate under those rules have complied, at what point does that come into the argument? Or is it the onus um, on the media to take the point of view of dissenters in a minority in a given environment and say, well, these people matter as much, even if there is a handful of them, as the vast majority who are in the same situation and who say, I can live with that. It's part of my job to satisfy a number of safety rules. Uh, and I'm guessing that the, the third uh, issue is these are people that have been listened to in that they came to Ottawa with an agenda that has, as far as I can tell, very little to do in the end with the vaccine mandate for truckers. They have 
not brought on side the Truckers Association, and they did come with the agenda of overturning the government. That, that's what they said they wanted to do. It's not the media that made it up. So here we are supposed to sit as journalists and say, gee, you know, they want to overturn the government. We just had an election uh, six months ago where most 60% of voters supported parties that agree with vaccine mandates. That's a clear majority. So let's give equal weight to the call to dispose of this government and replace it and explain how that would work. Well, it's impossible to explain how that would work because it doesn't work. That is not what democracies work like. So I'm, I am not big on the, um, the vaccine mandate thing. Uh, and I was not surprised, but also not unhappy to see Premier Legault drop the idea of a health tax uh, on on people who are unvaccinated. I thought it was a wrong-headed move and it went against every principle and tenet of the Canada Health Act and the way we operate when we offer health services. But the arguments that these people are bringing forward um, are frankly not arguments that uh, you can do much with except do what I just did, which is take them one by one and say, I'm sorry, but you don't have a case here. The, it, it, there, this is not uh, something that I can look at and say it has equal weight to the other side of the argument. Bruce, on the media. Well, you know, as I've tried to say so many times over the months, the, the media is not a monolith. And, uh, you know, so I, I think I feel obliged to say that again, uh, just in case you guys forget that. But here's, good, good here's the thing for me, right? Um I actually think the media have done a pretty good job by and large. I mean, there's always room for, um, for some things that you find discomforting. And I, I particularly wish that there had been a little bit more regular and frequent um, acknowledgement. The fact that um, this is a, this is a, a rule that exists on the American side of the border. And so changing the regulation that the protesters say that they wanted to have changed literally would not have any effect on the on their ability to cross the border and do their work. I think Chantel's right. It, the, the, the reason why uh, your writer is frustrated uh, really doesn't isn't the fault of the media. It's the is the lack of reasonable argument here, right? If you if your if your case is I'm coming to Ottawa to dissolve the government, why would you expect anything other than coverage that is skeptical to critical to you know a kind of mocking almost? I mean, it it doesn't hold up. If you're if you said that your argument is we want to have a discussion about whether or not vaccine mandates are still a good idea. And by the way, if anybody shows up with a Confederate flag or anything like that, they have to go away. They're not part of our group. I think this could have been quite a different conversation. Now, I still don't think it would legitimize blockading the city for the better part of a week now. But I think there are a lot of people who are quite prepared to say, including the Ontario um, Medical Officer of Health yesterday, that that we now need to kind of look at this two shot mandate and say, if it doesn't really re- if it doesn't really confer a higher level of safety because the booster is the necessary step. And maybe there's enough people that now have it that, and we're close enough to what appears to be barring some other variant, the end of this pandemic and it turning into an endemic situation. Well, I think that's an entirely reasonable debate. And, and I don't think that that's what this protest sounded like it wanted to do. I think it sounded like it wanted to um, bring a whole bunch of people who wanted to hurl um, slurs at the prime minister and, um, and kind of kind of uh, voice angry opinions about a whole variety of things and say that they were here to dissolve the government. So I think they got the media that their arguments deserved, which is to say pretty critical by and large. And I think that's the way it should work. Okay. We're going to take our final break here. We've got 10 minutes left which sounds like a lot, uh, but the way you guys are talking today, which has been great, 10 minutes is going to fly by. Um, the topic, mostly Chantal, let's yeah, be honest. Yeah, I know, that's right. <laughs> okay, guys. <laughs> um, 
And when we come back, the topic, we can say it in two words, Aaron O'Toole. And welcome back. You're listening to Good Talk on uh, Sirius XM Canada, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. We welcome you from wherever you are listening. Um, You know, I think it's been pretty clear from what we've had to say over the last six months since the election that Aaron O'Toole was dead man walking. And uh, as it turned out, the walk ended this week with, you know, an overwhelming vote in caucus. About three quarters of the caucus, almost three quarters of the caucus, voted to say it was time. Goodbye, Aaron O'Toole. And that's what's happened. And as Bruce mentioned and Chantel mentioned, Candace Bergen is the new uh, interim leader while they wait to find out the details of when uh, an actual leadership convention will be held and who will step forward to, to run this party that uh, has developed a once-and-done uh, format in terms of its leaders. They get one chance, and if they don't win, they're gone. Even if they hold uh, the other party to a minority, even if they get more votes than the other parties, um, they only get one shot at it. So when you see those numbers, I mean, we talked the other day, Bruce and I talked the other day about, you know, in a way it's the, kind of the Flora syndrome, Flora McDonald uh, in 1976 didn't get anywhere near the number of votes in the leadership convention that she thought she was going to get. Um, and she felt she had been promised from Conservative Party members. She didn't get it. And what we determined then with the Flora syndrome, as it was called, is that people lie. And I'm sure that Aaron O'Toole didn't walk into that room. He may have thought his leadership was in serious trouble, but I don't think he thought that three-quarters of the room was going to say goodbye. Um, and if he didn't know that, uh, maybe he has uh, you know, bad powers of, uh, of focus on, in terms of what's happening in front of him. Um, but nevertheless, that number, did it surprise you, and what does it tell you about the state of the Conservative Party today? And, uh, Chantel, you can start. Uh, keeping in mind, in spite of how much I've just blabbed on, we have a limited amount of time for this one. Yeah, well, thanks for taking all that time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, uh, um, no, it did not surprise me. Uh, why did it not surprise me? Because I think many MPs who uh, would have preferred to keep uh, Aaron O'Toole when they saw that almost one third of caucus had signed a letter to have that vote on his leadership, realized that even if they might have preferred keeping him on, because they don't really relish the alternatives, the only thing voting with him would accomplish would have been to delay the inevitable and cause a painful period of even more divisions. And so they did vote with those who really wanted Aaron O'Toole gone and who have wanted him gone since possibly before the election. And when he offered to uh, move forward the party's leadership review, I think he convinced them that there was no point. You know, if you're going to have someone lose his leadership, it's better to just do it and get get it over with than to just drag on and on and on uh, at cost of caucus unity. That being said, that is not to say that there is not a serious group of MPs, some of them serious, uh, valuable MPs who have been frontline uh, critics uh, and who you would want around a cabinet table, who are not keeping their options as to their political future open uh, on the condition of how and who becomes the next leader. This parliament will last maybe 18 to 24 months. There are people in that caucus who can go on and do things that they will feel will be more productive should the party take a turn towards the let's be more like Maxim Bernier's party uh, and let's throw out all of the climate change agenda that O'Toole painfully advanced. So this story is not played out and the stakes and the choice of the next leader for the Conservative Party are possibly even more serious than the stakes of the caucus vote on Aaron O'Toole's leadership. It will play out over a number of months. I'll remind you that when the NDP uh, members in Edmonton decided to fire Thomas Mulcair, the caucus 
stayed and survived, but a number of its most valuable members slowly but surely went on to do more productive things, sitting, for instance, around the cabinet table of John Horgan. They kind of gave up on the no notion that they would ever be in government. They felt they had talent. They went and used that talent more productively than uh, sitting as a rump in the House of Commons. All right. Bruce? I think the first thing for me is that you could look at that result on at the caucus vote and the sheer size of the rejection and say that was merciless. On the other hand, I think Chantal makes the point that in one sense it was merciful because it made it clear that this shouldn't go on and he didn't have the support. And so he might've felt incredibly surprised by it, but um, in the end it was probably better. And uh, a second thing is that my, my wife, Nancy Jameson is, is, is the smartest person I know about politics. Uh, you know, no uh, disrespect to Chantal, who is like tied for the smartest. The, uh, <laughs> Where are we going here to a matter of lists? But Nancy, <laughs> years ago, when she was a legislative assistant to Joe Clark, when he was prime minister, was kind of made famous in, I think, Jeffrey Simpson's book for saying that on the morning of a fateful vote that the conservatives had in loss in the House of Commons, she said, we don't have the numbers. And I'm still kind of shocked that this vote went ahead, given the degree to which they could have had a caucus delegation call up Aaron and say, let's not have this vote um, because this is how it's going to turn out. That would have been a, a more elegant way for him to end his political career. I, I would also add that he he kind of finished the way he started. Um, you know, he started his leadership by being that person who said, I'm going to campaign this way and then I'm going to switch to what I'm kind of standing for. And I think in the final hours of his leadership, it seemed that that's what he was doing again, offering to change what he stood for and campaigned for. And, and maybe that's a, a lesson for future leaders um, that, that, that kind of prevarication um, that chameleon style of leadership isn't, doesn't actually generally work very well. It, it makes pe makes you vulnerable to all kinds of people who have different points of view than the ones that you harbor or voice on any given day. And finally, I think that while it's fair to say that the Conservative Party needs to worry about whether it's too quick to reject leaders and this idea of one and done, I think that's a legitimate question. I think that Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole are out because they weren't very good at the job. Um, their negatives uh, went zooming up even as they were opposition leaders uh, campaigning against the prime minister who's not without scar tissue, who wasn't without vulnerabilities. And their negatives greatly outstripped uh, the evidence that the party brand was a problem. And so, uh, you know, I do think that the party needs to to be careful uh, about giving people a chance. And as you know, I felt like Aaron O'Toole deserved another chance, but I also think that leaders need to understand that if they become that unpopular without having had to make decisions in government, they're doing some things wrong. And that goes to the point that Chantal was making about what kind of party did they want to be for mainstream Canadians to see. All right, we got a couple of minutes left. Two weeks ago, we uh, we all seemed to agree that Pierre Polyev was the likely leader in the clubhouse, so to speak, before a campaign had even started. I'm wondering if your view has changed on that at this moment on, on one question. And the second is uh, Max Bernier, depending on which way this party drifts, is there any way he could end up back and his and his party and his seven or eight percent, whatever it is, drifts back towards the conservatives? Um, there are two questions uh, in yeah. the Maxim Bernier thing. The, uh, could his voters drift back to the party? Possibly, but at what cost uh, to uh, the, the hopes of the Conservative Party under its next leader to go and occupy that right of center vote that is the vote that is available? The blue liberals who are not feeling that the Trudeau government reflects uh, what they believe should be uh, the government and the fiscal course of the government, but who find nothing in the performance of the Conservative Party that makes them believe that, that this would be a competent alternative. So the closer that the party gets to the Maxim Bernier types and the more it caters to them, the more it can it stands to disconnect itself from the voters that will make a difference to getting elected. The second part of your question was, could Maxim Bernier come back in the fold? Um, he says no, 
and would he ever accept to play second fiddle to a leader? But people always say no before a negotiation. That is how you negotiate. Here again, I think that would be really dangerous. People are going to say, well, didn't Stephen Harper bring, you know, make peace with Peter McKay? I think it would be an insult to the former Reform Party and certainly to the former Tories to compare them with the People's Party and to Maxime Bernier. Uh, I think the circumstances are different, and he is a toxic presence. And the closer the conservatives get to it, the more they tend they risk shrinking their own capacity to uh, expand their debt. All right, uh, Bruce, you get the last word. I think one of the worst things that happened to the idea of a centrist, competitive, conservative party was the creation of the Reform Party. I think one of the better things uh, to have tried was to bring the conservative Reform Alliance. Uh, together with the progressive conservatives, I don't think it completely took as an idea because I think that the leadership subsequently wasn't really that into uh, winning the hearts and minds of centrist conservatives. Um, I think it's it seems likely on the surface that Pierre Polyev will win this and that probably what he'll try to do is focus first on bringing back the votes that were lost to the um, People's Party. And I think that that will feel like... Um, uh, a thing that warms the hearts of a lot of his caucus and a lot of his members, but I think it it, it poses further risks for uh, for the Conservative Party. There's a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of things that Max Bernier has said, a lot of things that, that won't hold up very well under scrutiny in an election campaign. And so I hope that's not where the, the Conservative Party goes. And I, I, I really like seeing all of the columns and opinion pieces written saying we need a competitive Conservative Party, one that can win. And uh, I really hope that the party listens to that and has a field of candidates that reflect that point of view. All right. Fascinating discussion. Um, and, you know, we've the three is three of us have all seen a lot of different things happen in Ottawa over the last years, many years that we've been covering it and watching it and analyzing it. And this week will go down in as one of those weeks, um, two very different things, but with some similarities at the core. Um, have taken over the national headlines and uh, and neither story is over yet. We've got lots to talk about on Good Talk in the future with both of these events. We'll see how they unfold. All right, Chantel in Montreal, Bruce in Ottawa, thank you both. And uh, we'll talk to you again in a week on Good Talk. Uh, the Bridge will be back on Monday. Have a great weekend. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Take care.